God, I pray that you would guide us just ever clearer, that our eyes would be opened to your leading. Thank you, guys. Good. Well, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan, and uh, welcome back, Melissa. Thanks for, I'm glad you're back. Thanks for leading us today. Um, you know, ton tonight, let me start by just mentioning tonight at, from 6 to 8 is an open house at Fourscore Coffee in Roseville. We're going to have a farewell get-together for the Haskins. Today's their last day. Uh, with us here. So short little program at 7. Otherwise, it's an open house kind of a feel. Hope you'll join us tonight. And if you can't come, here they are. Give them a big hug. Uh, raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to be preaching out of the, the Gospel of Mark, which is on page uh, 706. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, page 706. And uh, also there's pages, uh, like notes pages. You're welcome to grab one of these. Um, there's some infor important information on the back regarding some things that are happening this week. And then finally, if this is your very first time with us today, I hope that, um, that you understand, that we understand that stuff, something's going on. I, I know that. You, you don't just come to a church for no reason. And, and we want to say to you, if you're here for the first time especially, some of you are in this routine, and this is a pattern, and this is part of your health, and this is part of your devotion to Jesus. Some of you have been a part of our church kind of here and there for a while, but this is your first time here. We want you to know this is a place where you can you can journey with us. We'd like to journey with you. Um, we know that stuff's going on in life uh, all the time, and every once in a while, something wakes us up to our, our need for God uh, at a deeper level. And so we think, man, maybe I should go to church. Um, I'm looking for something. We want to journey with you in that, and I want you to know that you're welcome here. As kind of a, a gesture in that regard, if this is your first time here, we got a, a bag of roasted coffee for you. Uh, this is an organization that supports a mission group that we support as well. And we just want to send this home with you. So if you like, if you first time, go over there to the staircase sometime today. Grab a bag of coffee just with our hopes and prayers that uh, you will recognize the presence of God and know that this is a church that cares about you. So thanks for being here with us. Our summer preaching series is called uh, Words We Speak to God. Uh, and when I plan a, a series of teachings, it's because something's been stirring in my heart for a while, something's disturbed me, or I've had this like discovery, something has, has kind of woken something up inside of me, I want to talk about it, I want to learn more about it, I want to preach about it. I usually have a few ideas and some core themes about what it is that I want to communicate, but often about halfway through something like land, something new happens, something, there's a new discovery or some idea that I didn't necessarily foresee. And so that one of the surprise thoughts that keeps coming up as part of this series is this. We can speak words to God. I mean, that's just kind of like rocking me at a new level uh, recently. We can, we can talk to God. We can. We can say words to God. This is something that I think I typically take for granted. One of the underlying truths revealed in the Bible is that people can speak to God. We're not just spun out to sort of live out our existence in separation from the Creator. In fact, it's the opposite of that. We're invited into this actual dynamic and honest relationship with God. We can speak words to God. They don't even have to be the right words. 
We don't have to be theologically accurate. Uh, we don't even have to have our hearts in the right place. We can speak whatever we want to God, which is to say we can have a real relationship with God. That's amazing. And I think that it's easy to take things like this for granted. Uh, and it's helpful. It has been for me this week as I've prayed to even begin. This is an amazing opportunity that I'm stepping into, even to even assume that I can speak to God. So some of the words that we speak to God and some of the words that I read in the Bible about other people speaking to God, they make me uncomfortable. And the reason they make me uncomfortable is because they're coming from a place of pain and rawness. And it's like, oh, I'm not sure I'm ready to kind of step into that emotion with the person. Whether it's something I'm praying with this week or something I'm reading in scripture. Something like, why do the wicked prosper? You know, there's been a lot of you know, bad news constantly in our country, it seems like. But it's the violence this last week. Why do our enemies rule over us? These are some of the cries that we hear. Some things, some words that we hear People speaking to God makes me feel almost uncomfortable in the rawness. Some of the words that we speak to God, some of the words we read, others speaking to God in Scripture, they comfort me. They comfort me. It's like, here's this truth that is reiterated, and so there's this like reiteration and affirmation of God's love and God's care. Like, you have set my heart free, which preached on last, uh, last week out of Psalm 119. Or the psalmist who says, I find refuge in the shadow of your wings, like you're a place I can go for comfort, Psalm 36. And then there are the words that we speak to God, words I read in scripture of others who speak to God that just make me feel grateful. And the reason they make me feel grateful, friends, is this, because they show me how to be in relationship with God in a certain kind of situation in my life. And I don't know, I wouldn't have thought of that on my own. I didn't know you could say those kinds of things to God. I wouldn't know how to deal with this situation if I hadn't read somebody in scripture who's showing me how to be in a real relationship with God in this situation. And so for those words, I find myself being very grateful. Um, and I want to because they're instructive and they teach me. So I want to look at one of the examples of a, of a phrase like this, uh, words that somebody speaks to God, for which I'm grateful. Out of the New Testament, we've been in the Psalms for a while, look at Mark chapter 9. It'll be on the screen here in a minute. It's on page 706, I believe, yep, in the Bible that we handed out. So as you get to Mark chapter 9, let me just kind of uh, tell you a little bit about the setting, what is happening before the passage that we read. Jesus and three of his disciples, he's got 12, but three of them he invites up to the top of this mountain. And it's kind of a unique, this only shows up once in scripture kind of a story. Jesus' body is transformed. He's shining like the sun. His disciples see this. Then they also see him talking to two other people. It's Moses and Elijah. And that should be strange because Moses and Elijah, they lived and died in the Old Testament like a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. But here he is talking to them, talking to them about how Jesus is going to restore all things. It's this amazing ultimate mountaintop experience, like the ultimate camp high. Peter doesn't want to leave. He wants to stay right there, build a house, just be there. So it's amazing mountaintop experience. And then they come down the mountain and they encounter this totally chaotic scene. And that's what we're going to read together. All right, so here's what they encounter on the way back down the mountain. Mark 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law, these are like the Jewish priests, the experts in the law, arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus... They were overwhelmed with wonder. They ran to greet him. Jesus asked, what are you arguing with them about? 
A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? He says, bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus... It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus responds. Everything is possible for him who believes. All right, so we have this dynamic story with all these really interesting and significant details revealing a lot about what is going on out in public, also stuff that's going on behind the scenes, and even stuff that's going on inside people's hearts, inside uh, people's like souls, their emotions, their longings. So I want to invite us to try to engage this story with our imagination, all right? I'm going to throw out some questions, invite you to just respond uh, with your own opinions and observations about what's happening here. First question, what is the general mood of the crowd? What do you perceive to be the general mood of the crowd in this story? Sorry? Maybe they're skeptical, right? They've, they've gathered, the, it's interesting, the crowd is gathered before Jesus is even there, right? But here's this crowd. Maybe they're skeptical. It says, uh, one of the things that, that is written here is as soon as the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. They ran to him. What else? What is the general mood of the crowd? Curious? Sure. Yeah. Why have they gathered in the first place? Because Jesus wasn't there when they gathered. Why have they gathered in the first place? What do you think is so interesting? Okay, the disciples are there. These people are beginning to be famous because of what? The disciples are famous because of what? They're doing miracles, right? They're doing stuff. They're changing people's lives. And so here's uh, this man who's got a son who's sick, and he comes to the disciples and asks them to do something to heal his, his son. And so there's intrigue here, right? There's a, there's a, and then there's this other dynamic, which is the Jewish leaders. And what are they doing? What is the relationship between the Jewish leaders and the disciples of Jesus? What are they doing? They're arguing, right? So there's a debate happening. There's sort of a let's prove who's got the real truth here happening. In my mind, I'm seeing this as sort of like a, a reality TV event, but there's no TV. It's just like there's an argument, there's a debate, whose life is going to get changed? Is this for real? There's some sort of this almost sick sort of spectacle dynamic, right, with full of skepticism and also maybe hope. Maybe this is true, right? How about the dad in the story, the father of the, the demon-possessed boy? What's he feeling? He's feeling desperate. Absolutely. He's feeling desperate. The kind of information we're given about the story of this little boy's life has just been like extreme pain. And the father is desperate. He has sought out a healer in hopes of getting some sort of help, some sort of help for, his, for his kid. What about the disciples? What do you think the disciples of Jesus are feeling right now? What's that? 
frustrated. I agree with you. Yeah, they've come. Somebody's come to uh, seek help from them, and they haven't been able to do what they just did a couple of days ago when Jesus was with them. What, what's going on? Maybe they're frustrated. What else? How are the disciples feeling? Hmm? Maybe some doubt. Like, oh, man, if this, is this the way it works when he's gone? Like he's the magic sauce, and now he's gone, and now I can't, right? What else? What else are the disciples feeling, you think? Yeah, confused. Yeah, probably um, scrutinized. Uh, I can imagine some mocking happening. Yeah, you were real powerful last week, but now you can't even help this little boy. And then what about Jesus? What do you perceive is happening here in, in Jesus' mind and heart? We're just imagining. We have some stuff. Verse 16, he asks, what are you arguing with them about? He's asking his disciples that. And then he's got this really strong statement in verse 19. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? What's Jesus feeling? Maybe anger, maybe disappointment. Sure sounds like disappointment, right? I often wonder, is Jesus disappointed with me? It sure seems like he's like, oh my goodness. The word he uses uh, that's translated, how long shall I put up with you, is a, it's, it's a word that indicates a burden that is so heavy that you can't stand up straight. So we might translate this, you are dragging me down. I mean, I was just on the mountain with Moses, and now I'm down here, and you can't even help this. Little, I, how long do I put up with this, right? It sure sounds like he's exasperated. He's a little bit frustrated, if, if not more. Any other thoughts about how Jesus is feeling here? All right. Here's how I'm feeling at the end of this, at this point in the story, at the end of verse 23. Because I'm... I'm, seeing, I'm not only seeing this as an observer of the story, but I'm also kind of imagining myself as one of the disciples in the story because I'm a follower of Jesus. So I kind of just automatically start thinking like, well, this is what I would do if they came to me. And what if I couldn't, if somebody came to me and asked me to heal their kid, could I pray for them? And, be, and I'm also seeing this story from the perspective of the father who is desperate, who's only longing, really at the end of the day, his only longing is that his son will be healed. And, I've, and, I, and I feel that maybe there's this sense that I think ma many parents have at some point or another, which is something like this. I haven't been able to protect my son or my daughter from this. I have not uh, successfully guarded them from the brokenness of the world. And I don't even have what it takes to help them now. This, this almost inadequate sense of I am, uh, I'm just not able to do what it takes. That's how I'm feeling at this point in the story. And based on how I'm feeling, I see two options. There's two things that I can do. In other words, when I'm in a situation where I feel something like what I imagine the father in this story feeling, here are the two ways that I typically respond. Maybe you resonate with this. One way that I typically respond is to exaggerate my yes, to uh, overemphasize my ability. So I'm in a pressure situation I'm not sure if I can do it. What I tend to do is say, oh, totally. I totally have that. I got it. Don't even worry about it. I got what it takes. I, can, I, I get stubborn about it. I kind of take this I'll prove it to you thing. All my competitive nature rises up, and I'm like, I'll show you. I've got what it takes here. I overestimate my ability. I exaggerate my yes. I take the challenge. I try to, like, take control when I feel that desperate, scared, challenging feeling, 
I try to convince myself that I do have what it takes, even when I know that I don't have what it takes. And so I say, I can. Absolutely, I can. It's one way I'll typically respond. Another way that sometimes I respond is I get defeated by my no. Like right out of the gate, I'm like, nope, I can't do it. I succumb to despair. I get overwhelmed with the complexity of the issue. I feel like a failure. I say, I can't. I can't do that. So sometimes when, when, when stuff's intense and the question is on the table, sometimes I say, I can and sometimes I say I can't. It's either one or the other. In my mind, those are the only two options on, that are available to me. Until I read uh, a passage like this, and I hear the words of this father, and the words that are spoken here, for which I'm so grateful. Here's what the father in this story says. Here are the words that he says to God. He has just said, if you can do anything, take pity on us. To which Jesus replies, if you can Everything's possible for him who believes. And then here's the father's awesome line. It's verse 24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I love that. I need that. I do believe. Help my unbelief. It is this profoundly honest response, and it opens up a whole new option for me. I thought it was either I can which is frankly an exaggeration, or I can't, which is giving into despair. And now there's this beautiful third option, which is I do help my unbelief. I can, but I kind of can't. I need you to help me with that. So he can't really say I can and be honest. He can't really say I can't and be honest. So he comes in this beautiful, like, this, this implied question that is given to him from Jesus when Jesus says, Everything's possible for him who believes. The implied question is, do you? So do you? <laughs> and the father's answer is something like, well, I sort of do sometimes. <laughs> it's this sort of like, ah, kind of. It's, it's a real-life blend. That's what it is. It's a real-life blend of what's true, what isn't quite true, and what he wants to be true. And I just love that. I just love that. I need that. I'm grateful for these words in the Bible. The brilliant line is when he says, help my unbelief. Uh, the phrase in the Bibles we handed out is to, to kind of help us understand it in English. Help me overcome my unbelief. The original word there in the Greek, it means aid or help or even relieve. Like my lack of belief, it's almost like a malady and I need a remedy for it. Would you relieve, would you soothe my unbelief is what he's saying. So what the Father says resonates so deeply with me. It resonates with me personally, friends, and it resonates with me as, a, as someone who's sort of observed life in others as a minister for 20 years. There's a very real sense in which I do love Jesus, right? I do love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I live for Jesus. But there's also a very real sense in which I don't fully believe Jesus, and I don't consistently love Jesus. And sometimes, even though I say I live for Jesus, if you looked at me, you'd be like, yeah, it looks like you're living for yourself right there. So sometimes it's, it just feels like it's not as simple as a clean yes or no. Sometimes it's really both. In other words, I'm in this process, and this process is incomplete, right? I'm in this process of, of living for Jesus, but this process is incomplete. It's not that I'm, I'm not saying that I'm double-minded. 
and I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm a hypocrite, that might, you know, that's, but I'm saying something different. I'm trying to say I actually do love Jesus, and I actually do need to love him more at the same time. And I recognize my need for his help in order for me to, to love him. This is what St. Augustine writes in his sermon about this scene in the Gospels. He says, here's an example of emerging faith, which is not yet full faith. It's emerging faith. It, it's been born. It's, it's being birthed, but it's not yet mature. It's not yet full grown. Um, the father's emerging faith is real. It's clear. It has led him to Jesus, but his not yet full faith is also real. And it's clear. He himself admits to it. I do believe. Help my unbelief. So I'm so grateful for this scene because a lot of the time this is how I feel. And I think a lot of the time this is what's actually true about me. And I wonder if this is what's actually true about you. You do believe, but you need help believing. You do love Jesus, but you need help uh, loving Jesus. You can do it, but you need help doing it right? You trust God, but your trust for God is fragile. You love Jesus, but you're always praying to love him better. And a story like this shows me how to relate to God when my love for him is, is real, but it's just not as strong as it, as it should be. When my belief in him is true, but it's not as consistent as it should be. So here are the words I can say to God. I can say, I can do it, but I also, I know that I can't ultimately do it. I need you to help me. I do love you. Please help me to love you more. It's not this clean, easy dichotomy. So when Jesus asks me a clear black and white yes or no question, like, do you believe in me? Or do you love me? Do you want to serve me? I don't need to exaggerate my yes. Oh, totally. I'm, oh my gosh, I'm 100% all in all the time. And neither do I need to get despair and feel defeated by my no. I can say I do believe, help my unbelief. It's like a new, a new road for me. I do love you, help my lack of love for you. I, I want to serve you, help me overcome my lack of desire to serve you. Amen? So that's the message. That's pretty much it. That's, that's the core here. That's what I see in this story. It's this powerful words we speak to God. We could stop there. I want to walk around it just for a couple more minutes because I, I, I think there's some other observations we can make that are really helpful. You guys still with me? Okay, so three quick thoughts, three short ideas that I see as I kind of walked around and spent the week with this. First, are you not impressed by the honesty of this, of this guy? I mean, there is vivid clarity about his himself. We are often not super clear. We're often clearer about others than we are on ourselves. But this amazing clarity about the state of his own um, uh, belief in this case. How do you arrive at such a place of vivid clarity about yourself? In my view, yeah, you go through desperate times, right? You experience hardship. You have like a, uh, a hardship. <laughs> you have this, um, this desperate experience where you are like taken to your knees. In 12-step language, it's rock bottom, right? You hit rock bottom. When we're desperate, like this father who's desperate for the life of his son, things get really clear. We see things. We know what we want, what we really want, and we know what we really need. 
Uh, I, was, I was hiking through the mountains in, in this mountain range in Italy last summer on my way to this monastery, and uh, I was backpacking, and I planned to get water at this spring that was on my map, and it was this spring of historical significance, and I was just romantically like imagining all morning about how I was going to drink from this spring, and it was just going to be this great story, and I come around the corner, and there's a chain link fence and a big steel board over the, over the spring, so I was super bummed about it. And I left and I kept walking, and pretty soon I started getting uh, really thirsty. Well, man, I was counting on that. I, I wanted to fill my water bottle with spring from that, water from that spring. And I started getting, like, concerned and super thirsty, almost desperately thirsty. And I'm up on this trail on this mountain. I can see down the slope, and I can see this little farmhouse at the end of this field. And I was like, I got to go. I have to get some water. So I crossed this big field, and I knocked on this door, and I handed my Nalgene to this very cautious Italian woman, and she helped me out, right? At that point, it was like the only thing that mattered to me was the need for water. I was clear on that, and the only reason I was clear on that is because of the pain, right? The only reason I was clear on that is because of the desperate nature of, of what I was feeling like I was experienced. Clarity comes through desperation um, here. Here's a second thought. Okay, so the Father's response to Jesus was raw and honest, clearly, was it the right response, though? Like, are these the words that you should say to God? This matters because we need to know if we should emulate this story in the Bible. There's a lot of things in the Bible. People say, well, that's in the Bible. Yeah, but it, you're not supposed to necessarily do that, right? This is in the Bible. These words spoken to God. Are these words we should speak to God? The consensus of the historic church is this. These are not really the ideal words to say to God. St. Augustine has this whole sermon about how the faith of this man is very weak. He gives four reasons why the faith of this man is such weak faith, including the, the fact that he comes to Jesus and he's like, if you can do anything. It's almost like you get the sense it's a last-ditch effort. So the Father's words are probably not the best response. The best response would be, yes, I do believe and we actually have examples of people giving that best response in Scripture. Like Mary gives that kind of response to the angel. Yes, I do believe. There's a Roman soldier who gives that kind of response to Jesus. He asks Jesus to heal his servant who's in another city. He says, all you got to do is say the word. And Jesus practically stands up and applauds this guy and says, I haven't found faith like this even in Israel. So we have examples of Jesus basically saying, that's a great response. This is not one of them. But neither is this a bad response. There are examples of bad responses in the Bible. For instance, one time, uh, all these new moms and dads are bringing their babies to Jesus. They want him to bless their babies. And his own disciples say, get out of the way. He doesn't have time for this. And he corrects them because that was not the right response. So he says, no, uh, let the children come to me. That was the wrong answer. Another time he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and everybody's worshiping him like this. he's the son of God, right? He's going to save the world. And the religious people are like, stop these people from what they're saying. And Jesus says, if they stop saying this, this the stones are going to cry out, right? Because it was so, what was happening was so true. And their response, the religious leader's response, it gets corrected. Bad response. So there are examples of people saying the right words. And there are people saying, examples of people saying the wrong response. Um, and here in Mark 9, Jesus doesn't applaud the boy's father, but neither does he rebuke him, right? 
What the boy's father says is not the ideal response, but neither is it a bad response. So what is it then? It's an honest response, right? And because it's an honest response, it's acceptable. And that is so, I love that. I so appreciate this. It's an acceptable response. Yeah, it's, it is a sign of relatively immature belief in Jesus, right? But it's acceptable because this is where the man is. This is what's real, right? I do believe, help my unbelief. Apparently, friends, according to Mark 9, that's an okay thing to say. That's an acceptable response to Jesus. I'm so grateful for that. All right, and then just a final thought. And this is probably the most important. How should we respond to a story like this about a normal guy who says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. How should we respond to this teaching? I would say that the hoped for response is that we would go to Jesus with our needs. We would go to Jesus with our needs, even if they are things that we don't have, but we need to have in order to love and be devoted and to serve Jesus. Let me try to show you what I mean. I need a few volunteers. Anybody willing to come up here? Would you guys just help me out? Would you come up here? Zach, you feel okay about coming up here? All right. I need just a few of you guys up here. Let me, uh, let me try to show this. All right, Zach, you come over here on my right. Zach's going to represent Jesus. <laughs> and uh, Teresa and James, you guys are right here. You guys represent my friends, okay? So a lot of the time... During the week, and this probably happens to you, my friends come to me looking for help, right? And oftentimes, when my friends come to me looking for help, I have what it takes. I can, I can help them. I have what it takes. Like, I have this. You need that. I have that. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, it's stuck in my short pants, but I can, I can help you out because I have stuff. And then sometimes my friends ask me for things, and I know I don't have what, it, I don't have what they need. I don't have what it takes, but I know how to do that. I know what to do in this situation. I go to Jesus. That's what I do. And I ask Jesus, would you give me what I don't have? Thank you. And then, I, and then I'm able to give what I didn't have, but what Jesus gave to me to my friends, right? For instance, this week I was asked to comfort the dying. To comfort the dying. Christians throughout history have been asked to comfort the dying. Sometimes we're the only people in the world willing to do that. Christian ministers are specifically asked to do that. Did you know as part of my ordination vow is to comfort the dying? So I'm walking into this man's house this week, and I don't know what I'm going to find in there, but I know the, the big picture, and I know why they've asked me to come, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't have what it takes for this. I don't know what to say, and I don't know what to do. But I was okay because I know how to handle that situation. I go to Jesus, literally. I pray this as I'm walking up to the door. And I say, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I need you to give me what I don't have so I can serve somebody else, right? And so I receive from Jesus what I don't have so I can serve someone else. I am real comfortable with this arrangement. I've been doing this for a long time. I feel good about this. Where I'm not so comfortable is when Jesus asks me to, to serve him, to worship him, or to pray to him, just spend time with him. And I go, I, 
I don't have what it takes to do that with my whole heart. I just don't have it. The invita- so in, in, the, in the first example, these friends, they receive my ministry, and Jesus is the, like the power of my ministry, the source of my ministry, the recipients of my ministry. What if Jesus says, I want you to serve me, and I don't have what it takes? The invitation, that's right, the invitation is for me to say, Jesus, please give me what I need, right, to serve you, to give back to you. I don't have what I need in myself. This is a beautiful invitation. What we're saying here basically is Jesus is not only the object of my praise, the object of my love, the object of my service, he's also the source of the grace and the power that I need to return uh, praise to him, right? Beautiful. In other words, I do believe, but I need you to help me because I don't believe at the same time, right? All right. Thank you, guys. I hope that was helpful. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for that. Favorite pen? Thank you. Good. So sometimes... Jesus says, Nathan, I need you to worship me. The honest response is, I do worship you, Jesus, but sometimes I just don't. The invitation is to say, Jesus, give me what I need to worship you. Sometimes he comes to me and he says, I need you to serve me. And the honest response is, I do serve you, Jesus, but sometimes I, sometimes I just don't. And, and, and I have that tendency to exaggerate it or to just get, ah, I'm terrible at this. The invitation, friends, the good news is that we can go to Jesus and say, please give me what I don't have, but I need to return to you what you're asking from me. That's beautiful to me. It's a beautiful and encouraging truth. These words said to God, this could change things for us. The acknowledgement that, yes, there is a degree to which My love for you is totally genuine and true, and there's also at the same time a degree to which I need your help to enable me to love you as I should. Amen? I do believe. Uh, Help my unbelief. Let's pray for his grace. Lord, I thank you for the real-life situations that are uh, filling up our time and calendars and our thoughts. And I pray for your uh, help, Lord. I pray for your grace that we would be enabled by you um, to serve others and even then to to serve you directly. I pray for a hopeful uh, spirit in the midst of an immature faith that would would cause me to say, "I, I don't have it, but I can go to Jesus and I can receive from him. I pray for a Uh, a grace for ourselves as we continue in this process that is incomplete. And I do pray, Lord, that increasingly you would mature our faith, um, that more and more our response to you would be one of strength and, and certainty and devotion. But in that meantime, in that middle, may we take great comfort. And I, I pray, I just thank you that these words are acceptable in your sight. I do, but I still need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Good. Friends, would you stand up with me for a minute?